Well, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, we're in the middle of a series here that we started last week uh, called Knowing God's Will. And I'm excited to share with you this morning. Um, as a pastor, I am often asked, approached with the question of, is this God's will for my life? Uh, so you can put in whatever decision it might be, A, B, C, D, whatever. Uh, but is this a, God's will for my life? Is this his choice for me? Is this what he wants me to do with my life? And so um, some common ones are, should I take this job? I have this job offer. Should I leave this job and go to this job? Uh, or I have two job offers. Which job should I go to? Or, um, I mean, what church should I go to? And so I can tell you God's will is for you to go to this church. Uh, Tied greatly. Um, uh, a common one, um, I mean, it's what college. So I, I talk to a lot of young people. What college should I go to? Should I go to this college? Should I go to this college? What, what is God's will for my life? Um, another one is, who should I marry? So you're dating, you're getting serious, and then it's like, okay, is this God's will? Is it God's will for me to spend the rest of my life with this person? Um, and what I've encountered pastorally is that most of the time, when I am approached with this topic, God's will, what is God's will for your life, it's in one of two contexts. The first is extreme confusion or frustration. Because we want to know what it is, but we can't figure it out. And if we would just be able to know, I mean, we would do it. We would obey. If God would tell us, what is his will for our lives? So frustration, confusion, or as a way to kind of bully other people, or as a way to um, make immature decisions. Um, so uh, God told me this, or this is God's will for my life, and there's no way to argue. I mean, that's kind of the trump card, right? Um, no, God told me to do this. So you can't argue with me. You might have a problem with God, but you don't have a problem with me. Uh, this is God's will. This is his decision. He told me to do this. And so almost always when I'm approached with that topic, it's in one of those two contexts. Um, and the whole idea of kind of what we've come to believe and assume about God's will seems to me silly at best um, and unbiblical at worst. And so we'll, we'll work through this together. Um, we started last week. We'll continue today and we'll continue over the next few weeks. Um, but let's take just for instance the topic of marriage. Okay. So let's pretend um, that God had, before anything happened, set out a perfect plan. So Mike Skinner was going to be born in 1988, and there was one woman that he had made perfectly for me from all of creation, and he wanted me to marry her. And so for each of us, I mean, there's a perfect plan for marriage. Some people maybe not get married, but for most of us, there's a woman, there's a man that we were supposed to get married to. Now, I'm um, just thinking this out logically. All it would take is for one person to make a mistake... And then the ripple effect would mean that almost all of us are married to the wrong person. Um, I mean, we're all kind of in a... In a so and when I was in high school, I was dating this girl. I really, really liked her. I ended up ending the relationship for various reasons. Um, a few years later, she got married. And so my, as a guy, my reaction was jealousy. And I found out. I was like, oh, man, I really liked her. Uh, I mean, I broke up with her. I could have, I could have probably married her. Uh, and so I'm wondering, I mean, this is the question we all have. Did I miss out? I mean, was that God's person that he had chosen for me? If it was, then I'd made a huge mistake. And at best, I mean, at very best, I could then have God's second best choice for me, which is not a romantic proposal. Um, honey, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. The best option kind of already went. But second best is pretty good in my book. Um, I mean, that's just not a, that's not a great proposal. Um, so you're like, he's not married, right? Yeah, no, not married. Um, so this plan, I mean, there's a specific person that he's chosen for us. And so... I, I mean, if that's true, then, then everyone's marrying the wrong person. We're having kids that weren't supposed to exist, right? I'm in the mall. I see, I'm like, maybe you were supposed to be my brother. I mean, the whole plan has kind of gone off course. But this is, this is how we have come to view God's will, that there is a detailed blueprint for every decision that we make, most importantly, the big ones, like marriage, job, colleges, things like that. And what I 
have been dealing with over the past year, two years, three years as a pastor, as someone who also is trying to follow Christ, trying to live an appropriate life to the gospel, is what is the biblical concept of God's will? I mean, what does he really want from our lives? And then how are we supposed to find that out? How are we supposed to figure that out? What I've found is I think a lot of the assumptions we have about God's will aren't in the end biblical. And so what we're doing with this series is trying to get a biblical, a scriptural foundation for making decisions, for discerning and proving what is God's will for your life and for my life and all of our decisions. And so last week, if you missed it, it was an important part of the series. It's online, but we'll review just a little bit. What we did was we set out a biblical foundation for the will of God. And we said that in scripture... This phrase, God's will, or the will of God, or the will of the Lord, is always found in one of two contexts. There's two very distinct meanings to it. Um, So anywhere you see this, you see the will of God, you should be looking and asking, which will is this? Which meaning does this one have? Which context is this occurring in? The first one we mentioned was his sovereign will. His sovereign will. Uh, So we looked at Psalm 115, which says our Lord is in the heavens. He does whatever he wants to. God's not frustrated. He's never wanted to take this and put it over there and not been able to. He does what he wants to do. Nothing has happened that he has not allowed, that he did not want to have happen. He's never surprised or confused. He never has to go to plan B, ever. Never does he go, oh, I didn't see that coming. I'm going to plan B. We looked in Ephesians 1 where um, this great doxology says that God works all things, A-L-L, all things for his purposes. So everything that's ever happened in all of history has been right according to his plan to get to where he wants everyone to go, all of creation. So we define his sovereign will as God's secret plan that governs everything that happens. And we, we drew a few implications from it. One, this doesn't necessarily mean that God causes evil um, or causes sin, because there's a lot of things that technically happen that technically God doesn't want to happen. But as a master chess player, God governs all of it. He governs all of our decisions, both good and bad. The biggest example is the cross, right? On the cross, this group of men kill, crucify an innocent man. The apostles say it was God's plan from the beginning of, of creation. He's a master chess player governing everything. His sovereign will cannot be found by us. It's hidden. It's secret. We're not supposed to find it. And then second, we can't miss it. You're in his sovereign will right now as we speak. Not one thing has ever happened in your life. You've never made a choice that's got you out of this. He's not surprised. He's not confused. You haven't missed out on what he wants to do for your life. You are in his sovereign will. And then the second way that you'll see this phrase in scripture is referring to his moral will. And so theologians throughout history um, have have different terms for how you call this. This is what we're going to call them um, for our benefit. His moral will. We looked in Ephesians 5. This passage says, Don't walk in darkness. Walk in the light. Um, Get rid of sexual immorality. Get rid of filthiness from your mouth. All these things. For this is the will of God. We looked at 1 Thessalonians 4, which if you remember says, This is the will of God. So it doesn't get much simpler than that. This is the will of God. Colon, your sanctification. You becoming holier and holier, leaving your sinful, wrong ways behind, and becoming more like Christ, becoming holier. So we define his moral will as God's clear commands about the kind of person that he wants us to be, about the type of person that he wants us to be. And this is all throughout scripture. Act like this, don't act like this. Speak like this, don't speak like this. About the type, the heart of who we are and who he desires us to be. And so some implications for this, you um, can miss out on this. You have a choice. You can step outside of his moral will. You can miss his moral will. 
You can choose not to obey it. You can choose not to follow it. And you can be outside of it. Um, another implication, it's not hidden from you. You don't need to unlock a code to get to it. We have it. It's clearly revealed. It's been revealed throughout history. This is what God wants you to do and to be. This is the type of person he desires for you to be. Now, what has happened is when we come to a choice, like what college should I go to? What, who should I marry? Should I marry this girl or this girl? Um, we look at these wills. We look at how he's revealed his desires for our lives. And we go, this doesn't specifically apply to my decision. This doesn't tell me, should I go to A&M or to UT? This isn't, there's no verse in the Bible there. So what we've done is we've assumed that there's a third will of God that we'll call the individual will. And this is what we mentioned. It's a detailed blueprint for every decision, most importantly, the big decisions that we make. Um, so who do I marry? What car should I get? What job should I take? Where should I move? Where should I live? Those kind of things. And we have assumed that God has some kind of plan, some kind of blueprint for us. And our job is to find it, to unlock it. What does God want me to do here? What's his choice for my life? Now, the argument I made last week, and you can go listen to this online. We spent 50 minutes going through it, is that there is no such thing. It's not in the scriptures. Um, and so, particularly, it's important that scripture never teaches us to find an individual will of God that will direct our daily decisions. This is one of the big problems with it. If we are supposed to find it, scripture gives us no guidance on how to. So we have come up with all these different ways um, that lead to confusion and frustration. So your feelings. A lot of people say, well, what your heart would tell you would guide you. And we talked last week. That's not a good idea. The best thing in the entire universe that lying to me is my heart. It can rationalize anything to me. So while maybe desires play a factor, I think they do. We'll cover this throughout the series. They can't be the final say in what God's will is for me. That will lead me far astray. We talked about circumstances. Maybe God opens doors and we should read that. Again, that has a place, I think. But that can't be the final say. Uh, I used an example of someone getting struck by lightning. And someone saying, obviously, God didn't want them to be doing what they were doing. Well, what if Satan didn't want them to be doing what they are doing? I mean, you can read the same circumstance in two completely different ways. Scripture never um, gives us a clue, gives us guidance into how we're supposed to figure out this daily um, blueprint for our lives, this individual will of God. And so, again, I mentioned it last week. You can go to the sermon online. Uh, some of us, this is it's going to seem a little controversial or a little confusing. We've got an email address here at the bottom of your worship guide, key, or kgw at fcd.org. Email us a question, a text, and we'll get back to you. I made a promise last week. If you send me a text, I will include it in a sermon. I mean, we'll cover that text exegetically uh, and go through it. Um, I've looked through all the references. There's not that many, actually, about the will of God. They all occur in one of these two senses. Um, we're working on a handout that we'll give out to you guys, uh, going through all of it. Um, you're wondering in the scriptures, uh, there were times when God did come and tell people to do something. He came to Paul and said, go to Macedonia. He came to Abraham and said, do this, do this, made decisions for him. And we talked last week. That's not normative. I mean, one of the reasons in the Bible says I was special. And there's no reason to think he can't or doesn't do that anymore. But we've got to be clear. When that happened, it was supernatural. It was not, there was a feeling in their heart. It was not, they were reading circumstances. It was not the ways that you and I have come to figure out God's will for our lives. It was a very clear, no doubt about it, supernatural, this is my will for you. So today, what I want us to do in Proverbs 3 is... Start um, discussing how do we make godly decisions? How do we discern God's will for our lives? Because my condition is it's not hidden from us. It's not hidden from us. It's right there for us to understand. And so we'll start with really the first and maybe most important stuff today. And I want to do out of Proverbs 3, um, maybe one of the most famous passages used um, to talk about historically finding the individual will of God, finding his 
um, real desire for your individual decision. So we'll work out of this text, um, Proverbs 3. We'll pick it up in verse 5. Proverbs 3, verse 5. Let's listen to the scriptures. They say this. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be, it will be healing to your flesh, refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Okay, so one of the reasons, if you, I memorized this verse as a small child. Um, in Sunday school or at, at private school, I don't remember where, but I memorized this verse. But what I memorized is not what I just read. I'm reading from the ESV, English Standard Version. What I memorized and what I think a lot of us might have memorized if we grew up in church was from the King James Version. And it read a little bit differently. One key phrase here in verse 6, instead of, he will make straight your paths... The King James said, he will direct your paths. He will direct your paths. And so that gets taught, and how I understood was, if we trust in the Lord, if somehow we put our faith in him, he will tell me what step to make, right? So I've got the decision. I've got which college, 102. He will direct my path. He will send me to one, or he will send me to do. Now, the reason the English Standard Version doesn't have that phrase, and the reason your NIV doesn't have it, and the reason almost any translation other than King James Version doesn't have it, is because it was a bad translation, the reason the King James Version is confined to a small sect who still reads it and is very loyal to it is because we know much more about Hebrew and Greek now. We make much better decisions translating. Um, and so what we found is that word doesn't mean direct. It means one of two things, straighten or smooth. He will smooth your paths. He will straighten your paths. My ESV here, um, which I very much trust, I recommend the ESV, says he will make straight your paths. Okay, but here in this passage, what you have happening is two things. There's a series of couplets, a series of two um, steps here. The first, he gives you an instruction. So we read an instruction, and then we're giving a promise. This happens, I think, three times here in this passage. Instruction, promise, instruction, promise, instruction, promise. So what's the instructions? Verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean on your understanding. Acknowledge Him in all your ways. And verse 7. Be not wise in your eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Instruction, do this. Verse 9, honor the Lord with your wealth. Honor the Lord with your wealth. He's saying, listen to God. Follow His instructions. He has revealed certain things to us, and you should not think that you are smarter than that. So when God tells you to do something, He's saying, trust Him. When God tells you to go here, tells you to say this, when God tells you to be this kind of person, you should obey. He's talking about what we've called the moral will of God. The moral will of God. God's commands for our lives. Proverbs is filled with them. This is how you should live. This is the kind of person you should be. These are the kind of decisions you should make. And Proverbs is going, no, no, no. Don't think you're smarter than that. I mean, that's what we do as humans. God, in the scriptures, doesn't give much suggestions. Like, that's not a common thing for God to do. Hey, I think it might be wise if you do this. No, he's going, okay, I'm God. You're a small little human with very limited knowledge. Trust me that things will work better if it goes like this. Given commands, walk this way, do these things. It's the moral of God. God's desire for our life is that we obey Him without reservation. When He tells us to do something, we do it. There's no questioning there. And so the scriptures, Proverbs and the rest of the scriptures, are full of this. They're full of the moral will of God, the revealed commands of God about our marriage. The scriptures are clear about things like divorce, are clear about things like how husbands should love their wife. Like Christ loved the church. But what we do is go, well, God maybe wasn't thinking about my circumstance. 
So we lean on our, my own wisdom because I go, um, well, he didn't know about what her personality was going to be like, right? I mean, he did not know the situation here. God's like, no, 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 no. I'm God. I'm God. Follow my commands. Love her like I loved you. And to the woman, he says, respect your husband, submit to him, love him, take care of him, cherish him. And there's scripture talking about how we should treat our kids and how we should handle our finances. All kinds of revealed moral commands from God, the type of person we're supposed to be in. The Proverbs say, follow him, obey him without reservation, trust him, lean not on your own understanding. If you'll notice throughout the scriptures, his commands primarily concern our love. So when Jesus is asked in the Gospels, what's the greatest command? Some translation, what does God want from me? If God could boil down what he wants from me to one sentence, what would it be? Jesus says, love God and love the people around you. We have a love problem as humans. We love the wrong things. We love things that hurt ourselves and hurt the people around us. All that scripture is saying, no, you need to love the right things. Love me, love God, and then love the people around you. The commands, they, they primarily, they, they all almost boil down to our love. It's a heart issue um, about the type of person that we are. And so things like what we love, why we love, how we love. The scriptures go down to our motivation, to the way we see the world around us, um, what, our, what our hearts are actually desiring, what our goals are. And so for some, my argument from the scriptures that there is no individual of God is very freeing. And we'll talk about some reasons for that. We did last week as well. But for some, it's concerning. I mean, it seems kind of like, well, you do what you want to do. You have way too much freedom for messed up people like you and I. Um, but really, my argument there would be, I think his moral will, I think the commands he's given us are far more pervasive for all of our decisions than maybe we realize. So you can sit down, I can sit down with someone, and they can have three college choices. And if we really start to go through where their heart's at, we can start eliminating some choices real fast. What are you really wanting there? Where's your heart at in that decision? What are you worshiping? What are you desiring? What's your goal there? His, his, his scriptures throughout attack our heart. What are we worshiping? What are we loving? What are we holding on to? And so when he says, live like this with your finances, what he's doing there is saying, hey, how are you using your finances? Are they all about you? Because you've got a love problem there. Or do you give finances away? Do you live open-handed because you love the people around you? Because you love God, you give to his projects. They attack the kind of heart. And so what I've found about human beings is we, despite what some of us would say, we love black and white. I mean, we want everything to kind of be as kindergarten as possible. I mean, we like black or white. We want yes or no. And so we are confused and kind of frustrated when the world around us turns out to be gray, turns out to be ambiguous. I mean, this is why global politics gets so confusing. Because what we do is we paint it as good guys versus bad guys. When in reality, the good guys have bad guys in them. And the bad guys have good guys in them, and it's all this world of gray. One of my favorite quotes is that the line between good and evil is not between me and you, but it runs down the middle of both of us. We both have good, we both have bad. We want kindergarten, we want black or white. And so it would be real easy for God to come and say, do this, put on that shoe, put on those socks, go to this school, take this job. But instead, I think he does something much more demanding of us. He says, hey, this is the type of person I want you to be. This is the heart that I want you to develop. This is how I want you to love me and love the people around me. And so the, the Proverbs are saying, trust him, honor him, turn away from evil, fear him. And then there's some promises given to us. Look at the promises. If you trust him, if you do not lean on your understanding, if you acknowledge him with your ways, he will make straight your paths. We'll come back to that. 
In verse 8, if you fear Him and turn away from evil, it will be healing to your flesh, refreshment to your bones. In verse 10, your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. What He means here when He says your paths will be straightened is that if you follow Him, if you obey Him, if you are inside of what we call His moral will, you will not be tripped. Your path will be straightened. You won't get off the path. There won't be a detour that you didn't notice. There won't be, it'll smooth out. There won't be something to trip you up. That his highest purposes for you will be fulfilled. You won't miss out on his will, in a sense. Trust him, obey him, and your path will be straight. And then he goes on to talk about healing and refreshment. You're having plenty of things. Your vats being full of wine. Your barns being full of produce. You'll have life. You'll have sustenance. You won't miss out on what God has provided for you. What he's saying here is if we obey God... If we follow His revealed commands, His instructions, we will be on the right path. So the big thing to notice here is there's no need to worry at this point. If we're following His commands, if we're inside of His moral will, there's nothing to worry about. He is straightening our path. He is smoothing things out for us. Despite maybe the confusion that we might live in and the decisions we're faced with, we stay within what He's commanded us. Our paths are straight. We trust in that. This is the promise. We will receive life, healing, wholeness, sustenance. We'll be provided for. God will take care of us. Which brings us, I think, to one of the most important points here. Um, and so we'll flesh it out for a couple minutes. I believe that inside God's moral will, there are no wrong decisions. Inside His moral will, there are no wrong decisions. That if we are, so again, if last week, if we're picturing God's moral will as a circle, like a fence, inside of it, you cannot go wrong. He has cleared the boundaries for you, and you have freedom inside of that. So Augustine would say this, um, great Christian father, um, father of all kinds of things that we believe to this day, huge Christian theologian. He had this quote. He said this, love God and do what you please. Love God and do what you please. And so this quote has been misread and abused throughout history. But what he's saying here is what we're talking about. He's saying, love God. If your heart is in the right place, if you're loving God, so you can't forget that, you can't ignore that, you can't minimize that part. Love God. And then he says, and then what are you going to worry about? I mean, how are you going to make a wrong decision at that point? How are you going to severely get off the path that he set out for you? Love God and then do what you please. You're within his moral will. You're within the boundaries here. And so the rabbis, the Jewish rabbis, they would, um, pastorally, they encountered the same thing that I've encountered. And they would tell these stories from Scripture, and they would kind of embellish them, and they would prove points like this. And one of my favorites that I came across, um, the, this Jewish rabbi was telling a story from Genesis, from the creation story. Um, and it was about Adam and Eve in the garden. And so if you remember, Adam and Eve are in the garden. There's all these trees around them, and God gives them a command. He gives them... Um, uh, uh, instruction. He says, don't eat from this tree. And if you remember, he says, but eat of any other tree that you want to. So the rabbis are, are telling the story and they're talking about all these different trees that existed in the garden and different kinds of fruit and why you might eat this fruit and why you might eat this fruit. And there are these thousands of trees surrounding them. And there's this one tree they're not supposed to eat. And the rabbi ends the story by saying, now they could have eaten from any of those trees. It's not as if they would have gone to one of the thousand and God would have come down and go, no, 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 that's not what I wanted you to eat from. No, he told them, don't eat from this tree, eat from all of these trees. There was freedom once they followed his instruction. It would be the same if today uh, my mom had baked some cookies for me. And there was peanut butter, and there was chocolate, and there was oatmeal. And she knows I don't like peanut butter. She says, don't pick the peanut butter, but here, pick a cookie. And I pick the chocolate. She can't get upset with me. Go, no, 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 I wanted you to pick the oatmeal. 
This is a big test. You failed. You didn't figure out what I wanted for you. No, there was freedom. I followed your directions and there was freedom. There's freedom inside of that. There's no wrong decisions inside of God's moral will. Now, again, I would say this. His moral will is more pervasive than you might think. So I don't think a whole lot of decisions, choices that we would match up together, would get this far. If we sat down and talked about the choices, where's your heart? What are you loving here? This is the type of person God's called you to be. But I hold out the option that there could be two equal choices. Two choices that are good that you would not be making a mistake. God would not be disappointed with you because you have followed his will. You're following his commands. You're inside of what he has laid out for you. And he promises to smooth the path, to straighten it for you. Notice that God's will for us seems to be more like a compass than a map. If we want to get some more images in our mind to help us out here. Um, so the big joke is, I mean, in Sunday school the phrase is, the Bible is God's roadmap for life. And the big joke is, well, it's a pretty bad roadmap. Like, there's all these decisions in there. I can't find them. There are maps in the back, but they're not the maps I'm looking for. Um, and so I think it might be helpful to think more like this. God's word is more like a compass than a map. It tells us the direction that we need to be going in. It gives us broad brush strokes of the kind of person we should be, but it's not necessarily a map with turn here, take this step here, jump across this river here. And so I could, I mean, get out my iPhone. I could say, I want to go here. My iPhone would very specifically give me a map. It would even tell me down to the feet. It would say, in 113 feet, take a left. That's a map. Everything I need to know. I just need to follow every single instruction there, and I will get to where I want to go. But his word doesn't seem to operate like that. It's more like a compass. Hey, you should be going here. Your heart should be looking like this. This is the kind of person you should be becoming as you sanctify, as you leave your sin behind and become holier and holier, more like Christ. It's more like a compass than a map. And so God's will very clearly says that the purpose for you and I as Christians, our overriding purpose for being alive and for being saved is what? To be ambassadors of Christ's ministry. To share with the world around us what he's done for us. That would be a light to where I am. That through my life, the way I interact with people, the way I spend my money, the way my whole life operates, I would reproduce the gospel in people around me. I'm not just living and wasting my life away as I enjoy myself. I have a purpose. We all have a purpose. Strips that you were put here. You are sent out on a mission. So we have that compass for us. And then we're faced with a decision like, what job should I take? The question is, we sit down and go, is that, is that on the compass? Like, is that in the right path? If I take this job, would I be able to be a witness? Would I be able to be a light? Would I be pressured to do things that are ethically wrong, that go against God's kingdom? Maybe both of them are okay. Maybe they're both inside. At that point, there's no wrong decision. God's not going to get upset with you because he hasn't laid out for you what he wants. He's given you the boundaries and then you are free to decide. And so we'll talk next week on what comes in at this point is wisdom. Divine wisdom, not our own wisdom like Proverbs would say. Don't trust in your own wisdom, but the divine wisdom that God has given us. He's done his minds and hearts and key things in the scriptures for us to follow. <laughs> Lastly, look at it. It concerns primarily our character transformation. So real quick, uh, flip to Romans 12. We looked at this passage last week. This is a big one again when it comes to God's will. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing 
you may discern or prove, you may discern what is the will of God, what his desire is, what his choice is for you, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we talked last week, what will is this? Is this a sovereign will? Well, no, we're supposed to find it. We're supposed to prove it, discern it. Is this a moral will? It seems like it could be an individual will, right? It seems like this could be what we've assumed. This could be God saying, if we transform our minds, if we don't confirm to the world, he will show us what his perfect decision is for our lives, whatever we're facing. But if you look at the structure through Romans 1 through 11, it's largely doctrine or ideas. This is who Jesus is, what the gospel has done for us. And then 12 and on are primarily moral imperatives. This is moral will. If you look from 12 and on, you can read it. It's just four or five ver uh, chapters. It talks primarily with his love, with our love. How we should uh, interact, relate to authorities, submit to them. How we fulfill the law by loving the people around us. How we don't pass judgment on others, but relate to the people as they make decisions. How we serve with humility like Christ did. It's referring to the type of person we're supposed to be. We've also looked, um, we talked about last week, what's good and acceptable and perfect. These three adjectives are very similar to how he describes the law in Romans 7. With three adjectives there. The law, God's instructive, revealed will for our lives. But he's saying here... The way we find God's will is to leave our sin behind, not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds to think differently about God, about others, about the world around us. And at that point, what? We've found the will of God. We can discern what the will of God is, primarily what he ends Romans with. This is how you love. This is the type of person you should be in your worship to God, in your interactions and relationships with the people around you. So to summarize... What the first and maybe most important part in biblical decision-making is, it's this. When God commands, we obey. When God commands something, we obey. When God says, be this kind of person, make this kind of decision, we obey. If you are not doing that, if you're not committed to that, if you're not willing to do that, you are out of God's will. You are. You are not obeying what he has told you to do, what he desires for your life. Is not what you are pursuing in your life. Again, you will never step out of a sovereign will, but with those decisions, you are outside of his moral will. When he commands something, you must do it. First step in decision making is to eliminate all the options that would violate this. Eliminate all the options that would somehow not be the type of person that he wants you to be. And so next week, we'll get into what happens. What's your past this stage? What happens if you reach the equal options? Which I think sometimes we do. I sat down with a gentleman. Um, not long ago, we had two options for college. I told him, I don't think you're going to make a wrong decision either way. I don't think you will. Now, there might be choices, pros and cons for what, which one you go to, what you might be aiming for, things like that. And that's where we get this biblical idea of wisdom. Interesting, a, lot of, a large part of our Bible is called wisdom literature. That's the genre. Proverbs is all about wisdom. God's given us wisdom to think things through, to make decisions in these areas of freedom. In these areas of, we could call it responsibility. We talked about last week, God cares deeply about the choices you make. Not just his moral choices, but the small choices. He cares um, what you drive. He cares the way you spend your money. He cares what college you go to, what job you take, things like that. The first step in decision making, has God commanded this, then we obey. After that, there's freedom, there's responsibility. We're called to use wisdom. The scriptures are full of people seeking God's will. It's a good thing. That's a right thing. My contention, God's will is not hidden from you. It's not something for you to be confused about. It's not something for you to be anxious or guilty about. It's right there for us. I mean, the decision is ours. Do we want to be in it or out of it? 
It's not something that causes us to be indecisive for months and months and months because we can't figure out or unlock some secret or hidden thing. It's there for us. It's the type of person I want you to be. It's the type of person I want you to be. And so we'll, um, we might cover this. It'll probably be on a handout that we create for you guys in the scriptures. The Apostle Paul, who did have God come to him and tell him to do certain things, special revelation. His most characteristic, characteristic way of describing or explaining a decision was the phrase, it seemed best to me. It seemed best to me. Out of all the different times that God did reveal certain things to him, when he explained something to the congregations he was writing to or in Acts, he would use this phrase, it seemed best to me. With the wisdom that God has given me, inside of his moral will, this seemed like it made the most sense for my life. There's freedom there to, to walk in, to enjoy. What is God's will for your life? Primarily, is that you would be a mature, grown, faith adult whose heart is being transformed to reflect his that would love the things that he loves and hate the things that he hates. That you would learn how to, in every decision in your daily life, worship him, bring honor, lift him up, glorify him, and then love in deed, in truth, in word, the people around you. That's his will for our lives. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for our time. I thank you for... Um, these few weeks in our church's life where we can discuss this, uh, I pray that you would give clarity and, and that you would um, help us avoid confusion and frustration, things that I don't think you are the author of, that you desire for us. Um, I pray that you would speak clearly to us, that you would give us both freedom in what your scripture teaches and conviction. The line between good and evil is much more close to us than we might realize that all of our decisions maybe are tainted by our own sinful, selfish desires more than we sometimes admit. Father, help us to fall down in front of you in confession and repentance and say, we need you, we need you both for our salvation and for our sanctification to work and to change and to correct and to shape and to mold who we are and how we think and how we love. We worship you this morning because in our sin, you came and died to forgive us of our sins, to sacrifice yourself for us. We thank you. We praise you. That we, we ask that that would be the foundation of our identity. That would be who we are and why we are. Your love for us, your grace revealed to us in the cross. Be with us. We need you. We love you. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.